0: get to cling on to those who hope in Christ will walk beside the king those who hope in Christ will be with the treasure of their hearts forever Christ will be ours forever more and so we have reason to rejoice in the depths of our soul This morning because of the hope of the gospel. Well, turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. As we come to Revelation this week, uh, we're starting a new series. uh, And it's interesting, we started this year looking at a letter to the church at Ephesus that Paul wrote. And then after that, we spent some time in the Gospel of John, and uh, this morning's text is really an intersection of those two things. It's a letter to Ephesus, uh, but it's penned by the Apostle John, and so it's uh, sort of uh, a crossover here, if you will. Um, In the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus gives John visions about uh, a number of things, and if you know anything about the book of Revelation, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, But before uh, the bulk of the content of this revelation, these visions and these uh, prophetic symbols and whatnot, uh, Jesus gives John a message for each of the seven churches that this revelation is given to. Uh, There were seven churches in uh, the area known as Asia Minor, or what we would think of as modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches were the recipients, uh, the original recipients of this revelation From Jesus through the Apostle John. And uh, at the beginning of this there's a letter to each one of these seven churches. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next several weeks. Today we'll be looking at the letter to the church in Ephesus. So Jesus writes this through the Apostle John to the seven churches. And and when we think about these seven churches we need to understand a couple of things. One, these were seven churches. Actual local churches in the first century, uh, just like us, they were a group of believers who gathered together to worship God, try to be faithful as god 's witness in the world so these These are letters written to real churches at a real time and place, but we also need to understand that there 's a lot of symbolic meaning in the book of revelation, and, and one of those symbols is the number seven so when John writes that this is going to the seven churches. There, there's a, an extra meaning in that word seven. The, the word seven throughout Revelation is uh, it stands for this idea of wholeness or completion. So yes, he is writing to seven actual churches in the first century. But to say the seven churches, he's also really writing to the whole church, to all churches, to the church of Jesus Christ. Throughout all generations, in every place. And so as we listen, even this morning, as we get ready to read this letter to Ephesus, it is Jesus' message to Ephesus at that time and in that place. But we also need to understand that this is Jesus' word to Rocky Point Baptist Church today. So with that, let's read Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. which is in the paradise of God. So both Alyssa and I have spent most of our lives in larger cities. And one of the things about larger cities is that you can drive around and pretty much count on no one recognizing you or your vehicle. Not so in Stephenville, Texas. And so... Uh, in light of that, I'd like to thank uh, several of you who pointed out that I have a headlight out on the driver's side of my car over the last few days. I promise, yes, I do know about it. I'm going to fix it. I promise I'm not going to drive at night until I get it fixed. Um, but I, I, I appreciate it. appreciate you letting me know uh, that the light was not shining like it's supposed to. Uh, as we come to Revelation, speaking of lights that are not shining like they're supposed to, uh, Jesus, in these opening chapters, gives this image of a lampstand. He gives this image of a lampstand. He, he, he shows John this vision of seven lampstands. Lampstands have lamps on them. They're supposed to shine. And he says that these lampstands are a symbol of the, these seven churches. He chooses that image of a lampstand because A lampstand shines. And likewise, a church is supposed to shine. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus intends for his people, his churches, to be light that shines, to be witnesses in the world. And here in this letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus really hones in on this image of the lampstand. All of the letters... Pull from different images that Jesus uses in the early part of revelation, but but here this image of a lampstand is really in view as Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus. Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands, who's present with his churches to supervise they're shining, they're witnessing they're being a light to the world, and he writes to Ephesus to encourage them. Where they are being faithful as a lampstand shining in the darkness, but he also sees where they are not shining as they ought. And in love, he corrects them and he shows them how they are not shining as they are supposed to shine. With this in mind, as a church, we need to remember that we are meant to be a light to our community. We're meant to be a light to our dark world. And so the question we need to ask in this text is, are we shining like we're supposed to? Are we shining like we're supposed to? The main thing I want want us to see in this text is that Jesus wants our church to shine, to be a light for him. To bear witness to him. And the good news of this text is that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. He is present with his churches to equip us and give us what we need to be able to shine for him. So as we look at this letter and, and all seven of these letters, there's a, there's a pattern that uh, each one... Uh, Is written in. It starts with an address to the church. It includes a description, a partial description of Jesus, which refers back to a a vision that John gave in Revelation chapter 1. Then in the main body of the letter, the main content of the letter, Jesus offers encouragement or rebuke or both. And then each letter ends with this word to hear what the Spirit says and a promise of something that is to come that Jesus will reveal later at the end of the book of Revelation. And so today we're going to walk through each part of this letter to Ephesus. And re- keeping in mind that Jesus wants our church to shine. And if our church is to shine, there's four things that we need to keep in mind. If our church is to shine, we must first submit to the authority of of Jesus. Submit to the authority of Jesus. So here in verse 1, Jesus is described, he describes himself as the one who holds the seven stars. As I mentioned before, this is a reference to the first chapter of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears to John in a symbolic vision and all of the, the symbols that he shows John are, are meant to describe an aspect of himself. And in this, descri- in this symbolic vision, Jesus, uh, John sees Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand. Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 1 that these stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. Throughout Revelation and and throughout Scripture, uh, we understand that angels are beings that exist in heaven. They're created beings that God created to worship him and serve him, but we also see that these heavenly beings in in some way are meant to serve Christians who live on earth. Uh, Hebrews 1 and verse 14, for instance, tells us uh, that these are ministering spirits that are Uh, To serve those who are to inherit salvation. And so while we don't know everything about what this means that a church has an angel. There's a few things uh, that we need to observe about this idea that there is an angel of the church in Ephesus. uh, That there are seven angels for these seven churches. Uh, First, notice that Jesus says, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So, in some way, this angel is a representative of the church by writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Uh, Jesus is clearly telling John to write to the whole church, so the angel kind of stands for the church it 's a representative of the church. The second thing that I think we need to notice about this, and this ought to remind us the fact that the earth or the church on earth is represented by an angel in heaven should remind us that as we gather as the church of Jesus Christ, this is not just an earthly reality. This isn't just a bunch of people getting together to help one another through life. This isn't just a bunch of people who have gotten together to figure some stuff out on our own or get through life better. No, this is a heavenly reality that we're part of. As a local church, we are one local assembly that represents a, a heaven, heavenly reality. A reality that we won't fully see until the last day. But we are one local expression of a heavenly church, a heavenly assembly that will all be gathered together one day before the throne of God. People from every tribe and nation and language and every generation. We need to remember, as we seek to be a church under the authority of Jesus, that we are not just an earthly entity, we are about something heavenly. The other thing we need to notice about these stars uh, is Jesus holds them in his right hand. He's hands-on with his churches. As he holds these angels that represent the churches, that stand for these churches, it it expresses his authority over these churches. They're his churches. He's holding them. He has authority over them, and he's also protecting them. They're safe. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, none can snatch them from my hand. And then the last thing I would point out about this symbol of a star is stars shine. Just as the symbol of the church, the lampstand, is a picture of shining, so the angel of the church has this picture of shining bright. Whether it's the representative of the church or the church itself, it's clear that Jesus wants his churches to shine into the dark world. So Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven golden lampstands, his churches. He walks, again, he's, he's hands-on with his churches. He's walking around these lampstands, supervising, their shining, caring for them. And having authority over them. As he walks around, he sees his churches. He sees what happens in his churches. Every single letter here in Revelation, Jesus says, I know. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. Over and over and over. He says, I know. I know. He sees. He sees the good. And he encourages his churches to keep on shining. And he also sees the bad, and he disciplines his churches so that they might shine brighter. Kind of like how the father, the vine dresser, prunes the fruitful branches that they might bear more fruit. But the point in all of this, as we see Jesus holding the seven stars, as we see Jesus walking among the lampstands, is that we, in our shining, in our being a witness in a dark world, are under the authority of Jesus. And so when we ask the question, how do we shine? How can we shine as a church? The first thing that we have to ask is, well, what does Jesus want us to do? How would Jesus have us shine? And the reason I think this is important on a practical level is because when we hear a message like this, oh, we're supposed to be a, a light in the world, we're supposed to shine, or we hear a message on evangelism, or we realize, oh yeah, you know, man, I, I, need to, I need to be doing more of this. I need to tell more people about Jesus. I need to tell more people to come to church. And I need, If we hear this, we get this, this right burden in our heart, but sometimes it can just become a duty. Like, oh yeah, that's that thing I'm not doing that I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, I need to do that. I really need to do that. But we need to remember that as we think about evangelism, as we think about being a witness, uh, we don't just want it to be a duty. And we certainly don't want to take this, okay, we need to do this, so let's just go figure this out on our own. Let's just, you know, we, we have this desire, we want to be a light to the world, we want to be a witness, so let's just, and, you know, we've we got to do something, we got to do anything. No, Jesus would say, no, le- listen to my authority, listen to my oversight. Uh, we need to come up under the authority of Jesus and first and foremost ask, well, how would Jesus want us to be a light in our community? How would Jesus want us to witness? And what we're going to see in the rest of this passage is how Jesus would have us be a light. How Jesus would have us be a witness to our dark world. The second point is that we ought to stand for truth and righteousness. If our church is to shine... We must submit to the authority of Jesus, but we also must stand for truth and righteousness. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not Grown weary, So Jesus praises the church in Ephesus for how they are, they are shining in standing for truth and righteousness. He praises them because they're faithful in the long haul against evil. And they're faithful in the long haul, enduring against false teaching. They're discerning as they hear people who claim to have the authority of God but are actually speaking the truth. They're discerning as they see moral evil and they stand against it. Apparently, at some point in the life of the church of Ephesus, false teachers arose. And not only were they teaching things that were false, but Jesus describes them as as evil. There's a moral dimension to what they are teaching and how they are influencing or trying to influence this church. Uh, And then look at verse 6. Jesus says, uh, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but uh, they come up again in the letter to the church in Pergamum. And what seems to be the case is that they were leading people into idolatry and they were permitting sexual immorality. So there was not just a false teaching, but there was a, a moral evil that was trying to invade the church in Ephesus. And the Ephesians were standing against this evil. They did not tolerate evil in their church. What they recognize is that righteousness is essential for a church's witness. We as a church carry a message that is not only that Jesus forgives sinners, but that Jesus transforms sinners. We have a gospel that not only gives grace to those who are fallen, but also transforms them and conforms us to the image of Christ. And so to tolerate immorality is to put a stain on our witness. To tolerate sin is to contradict the gospel that we preach. We're saying Jesus is transforming our lives, but if we look like just the rest of the world, then what kind of transformation is that? We, as Christians who are to be a witness in the world, who are to shine into the darkness, bear witness to Jesus and the truth of the gospel by showing ourselves to be different from the world. To have different morality. That Jesus is transforming our lives, our hearts. When the world promotes an anything-goes sexuality, we as the church shine into the world by highlighting the sanctity of marriage as God designed it. When the world wants to return evil for evil, we shine into the darkness by loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, turning the other cheek, Uh, When the world around us has has bigotry and injustice, uh, we shine as a light in the dark world by promoting the sanctity of human life created in the image of God. Uh, When the world is about self-promotion and self-expression, the church shines into the darkness with a message of humility and Christ-exalting. Our righteousness, our difference from the world, is supposed to be part of our witness. And if we fail to be different morally, we fail to shine into the darkness. We must stand for righteousness, just like the Ephesian church stood for righteousness in order to shine in in the world. In addition to righteousness, uh, the Ephesians stood for sound doctrine. They stood for truth. Sound doctrine is an essential part of our witness as a church. The Ephesians, they heard these people calling themselves apostles, claiming to have God's authority, but they, were, they knew the truth so well that they discerned that these people were false, that they were speaking things that were not true. And so they opposed them. They hated this false teaching, and that was good. Jesus praises them for this. They knew that sound doctrine is essential to our witness as Christians. You know, as, as Christians in America, I think we, it's pretty easy to see that um, the general American culture around us has this sort of coexist, uh, tolerate mentality. But, and so it's easy to say, oh yeah, that's, that's not right. We believe something different. But sometimes it's easy for us to adopt a similar kind of attitude within churches, within people who call themselves Christians. Uh, we might be quick to recognize, oh yeah, Christians are different from Muslims, for instance. Yeah, we, we know we are different from them. But what about people who call themselves Christian, but don't actually preach the gospel? What about people who claim the name of Jesus, but aren't actually faithful to what the Bible teaches? I, I think especially for us, I, you know, we always need to stand against heresy against outright falsehood against things that are that are uh, outright just opposed to what the bible teaches but my burden for for us is i think where we where we have to watch out and be vigilant and be diligent against um uh, in this way and shine like a light in our stand for truth we need to watch for compromise we need to watch for watering down the truth of the gospel because in the name of trying to reach people uh, often christians will not stand for truth but compromise on the truth not not adopt outright heresy but just sort of take some of the rough edges off of what we believe so you'll hear uh, even songs on the radio that that they don't want to talk about sin so they'll just define it in terms of like burdens chains and I, those are those are biblical images i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but Uh, But we just kind of soften a little bit the rough edges about what the Bible teaches. And we'll talk about the love of God all day long. But we'll never bring up the wrath of God, even though the Bible teaches that that is who God is. Uh, We talk less about the cross and more just about how, you know, God has purpose for your life. In in the name of trying to reach people, in the name of trying to make a, a, a connection with people, we try to make the message of the gospel more palatable. Uh, more easy to grip onto. But we have to realize that the message that we proclaim is offensive. Now, we should never try to offend anyone. But Paul instructs us to never remove the offense of the cross. And so, one of the ways we stand as a light is by holding up the gospel without apology, by saying, hey, this is, this is what the Bible says it says that we are all sin and we deserve eternal damnation that's what it says we don't want to take the rough edges off what the bible says we don't want to take the rough edges off the fact that the bible calls us to repent not to just kind of keep on going on with life and tack on jesus as a ticket into heaven that's not what saving faith present, or how the bible presents saving faith so we need to watch out, yes, for outright false teaching and heresy, but we also need to watch out for compromise. Because in the name of witnessing, we might want to make the message more appealing, but the truth of the matter is, if we're going to shine as a light in a dark world, we have to shine by being different, by having a message that isn't popular, but by having the only message that gives eternal life, that saves, that takes people who are dead in sin and brings them to life. And gives them hope and a future. So if our church is to shine. We must first and foremost submit to the authority of Jesus. We must stand for truth. And stand for righteousness. To have a stark contrast against the world. But then third. We must repent of lovelessness. Jesus encourages the church in Ephesus, for hating what he hates. There are things that Jesus hates. He hates evil. He hates false teaching. And it is good and right for us to hate those things. We should hate sin. We should hate false teaching. But in the process, the Ephesian church lost something. Look at verse 4 again. Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, yes, it's good that you hate what I hate, but in the process of hating, you've lost love. You've lost the love that you used to have. And just in case we think that this is just a mild slap on the hand, look at verse 5 and how high the stakes are when it comes to love. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The Ephesian church had failed in their witness. They had failed to shine with love. And this was so serious that Jesus says that if they don't change, he's going to take their lampstand away. Remember, the lampstand is a symbol of what it means to be a church. And so Jesus is saying that their very status as a church is on the line because of their failure to love. He says "You you can stand for truth all you want. You can stand for righteousness all you want. But if you aren't showing love, you're not a church of mine. That's how serious... This is. So he calls them to repent. Now, he doesn't, by saying repent, he's not saying stop standing for truth or stop hating what I hate. No, that's a good thing. You should hate what I hate. But to repent of lovelessness is to add on to that love. The love that we have ought to not only come alongside the hatred of evil and hatred of falsehood, but it, it ought to be more than that. It ought to supersede The hatred that we have for things that Jesus hates. Love is God's highest priority for his people. Jesus taught that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all that we are. And the second commandment is to love neighbor as ourselves. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that if I don't have love, I am nothing. It's not enough to just hate what Jesus hates. It's not enough just to stand for truth. It's not enough just to stand for morality. We must love if we are going to shine like a light into the darkness. We must have, first and foremost, a love for God. A passion for God. A heart that desires his glory more than anything. A heart that is moved by the greatness of God. That loves God with everything. As I mentioned before, it's easy sometimes to to hear something, hear a teaching on evangelism or whatnot and turn it into a duty. But if we only think of evangelism in terms of a rule to follow or a duty that we do or do not do. We won't evangelize if that's how we think about it. Evangelism, being a witness in the world, must flow from passion for God. We talk about what we love. Uh, If you uh, love your career, you you love to talk shop. If you love your family, you love to tell people all about them and to show them pictures of the cutest one-year-old on the planet, or so I hear. I would never do something like that. If you love a hobby or a movie, uh, you'll talk about it. You won't be able to shut up about it. If we know that to be true about all these other things, why would we think it's any different when it comes to God? It, It might be that if we sense a lack of evangelism in our lives, or if we sense a lack of evangelism in our church, it might be because, not because we need to focus more on evangelism, it might be because we need to focus more on our love for God. It might be because we need to focus more on our passion for God. Because when you love something, you can't help but talk about it. When you're passionate, when when something is the most important thing in your life, you're going to tell people about it. And, And at that point, evangelism, talking about what you love, isn't a duty by any means. It's a delight. If we are going to shine bright like a lamp in our witness We have to burn hot for God in our worship. Well, how do we do that? How do we increase in our passion for God? Well, there's no substitute for the word of God and prayer. In the word of God, we see God's character revealed. His graciousness, his mercy. I mean, did you hear what the psalmist said in our call to worship in Psalm 116? I love the Lord. And then he lists all of these truths about who God is. The mercy of God, the grace of God, the way that he saved him. There's no substitute for the word of God. The word of God fuels our worship. Privately and publicly, this is why the Word of God should always have a prominent place in our corporate worship services. Because the Word of God is like fuel on the fire of our worship, and thus our witness. And then in in prayer, we, we bring our lives to God. As we bring our lives to God, and as we adore God, and as we confess our sins before God, as we thank God, and as we make our requests known, we see the faithfulness of God and the character of God on display in our lives. We, we have our eyes open to what God is up to in our lives. How he answers our prayers. How he, how he is trustworthy even in the hardest situations. As we come to God in the word and through prayer. It's fuel for our love for God. If we're going to burn hot for God. If we're going to shine bright in our witness, uh, yes, we must have a love for God. Our witness must start with a love for God, but we also have to have love for neighbor. Uh, first and foremost, we, we need to have love for our fellow believers. Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus has designed us to be a witness to the world by loving one another. By Jesus' disciples demonstrating to the world what it looks like to have loving relationships. We will lose our witness if we fail to love one another here in our church. We'll lose our witness if we let bitterness into our church. We'll lose our witness if we let divisions come into our church. We'll lose our witness if we let gossip into our church. If the world looks looks into the church and sees people that don't look like they've been changed by Jesus, they will not listen to our message of how Jesus can change their life. But how powerful a witness is it to look in on a family of believers who love one another like Christ loves us. How powerful of a witness is it to see a church that loves one another, that is patient with one another and kind to one another, that does not envy one another or boast to each other, that 's not proud, that isn 't rude to one another, that isn 't self seeking that 's not easily angered, that keeps no record of wrong, that does not delight. And evil, but rejoices in the truth. What a powerful witness to what God can do when a church loves one another. We need to have a love for God, we need to have a love for one another, uh, and we also need to love the world that we are trying to shine toward. If, if our witnessing, if, if our being a light to the world, if our evangelism doesn't come from a place of love for the world, if it doesn't come from a place of love for the souls that we want to bring to Jesus, uh, we aren't going to be effective and, and we're not obedient. We're not showing the world what it is that we want to show to them. Uh, we need to extend the love of God to those that we want to reach for God. Otherwise, evangelism can just become a duty, like we talked about, and the person that we're trying to reach with the gospel can just become a project. Like, oh yeah, this is you know, my token lost friend that I'm trying to share the gospel with and you know, get them to cross the finish line. Like, No, this is, this is a soul that we are to love as ourself, Jesus says. We don't just want to treat evangelism like a checkbox. Like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to do that. I've got to find someone. Like, oh, you look pretty lost. I'm going to go over to you and share, you know, get my evangelism badge for the week. Like, no, it must come from a heart of love. If we are to shine like a light, we have to love a whole person. And we can't just think of, of even just conversion, uh, coming to Jesus as the finish line. Now, if we're going to love someone, we need to love their whole person. We need to love their their whole process of discipleship. Love them through it. Because we care not just about doing our duty. We care about their soul. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's not about checking our box. It's about loving people who desperately need Jesus. If we are going to shine like a light in the world, we have to repent of our lovelessness. We have to repent of our lack of love for God. Or our our lukewarmness and our passion for God. We have to repent of a lack of love between one another. We have to repent of, of not loving those that are lost around us. And we need to turn away from that and turn toward passion for God. Selfless love for our brothers and sisters. And a love for the souls around us. So lastly... If our church is to shine, we must pursue the promise of the tree of life. We must pursue the promise of the tree of life. Look at verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Which is in the paradise of God. Each of the seven letters here in Revelation ends with a promise for the one who conquers. A promise for the one who endures in what Jesus calls his churches to do. And reaches the end and conquers. And each one of these promises uh, is a foreshadowing of something that Jesus is going to reveal at the end of the book of Revelation. And this one is no different. Here the promise is that he will grant the one who conquers to eat of the tree of life. If you're familiar with the opening chapters of Genesis, you recognize this term, tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, that paradise of God that God gave to our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. There were many trees, but there were two special trees that God Placed in that garden, in his paradise. One of them was the tree of life. And he gave this tree of life to Adam and Eve that they might eat of it and live forever. Of course, there was also another special tree in the garden that was different from the other trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to not eat of that tree, because if you do, you will surely die. Of course, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, defied his command, and ate of the tree that he told them not to eat of. And they brought sin into mankind. And so God, at the end of this story in Genesis 3, uh, removes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life and live forever. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is, Is that Jesus is restoring Eden to creation. Jesus is creating a future that's better than Eden. Jesus is restoring the paradise of God. Just listen to what Jesus gives to John in the form of a vision about the future that Jesus is bringing through his death and resurrection. Then the angel showed me, this is Revelation 22 in the first two verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of Of the nations. So, why should we endure? Why should we patiently endure? Why should we not bear with those who are evil? Why should we continue in these things? Why should we abide and remain in these things, persevere in these things? Because at the end of all of this, at the end of the continuing, at the end of the endurance and the perseverance, Jesus promises a future that is better than Eden. He promises eternal life at the end of this life of endurance and perseverance. He promises to eat of the tree of life. Anyone who conquers will eat of this tree of life. He does promise this to the person who conquers. Conquer. You know, as we look at this life of endurance that Jesus calls us to, a life of perseverance that Jesus calls us to. This conquering. This this promise this yes you will have this if you conquer. Uh, it can be daunting to hear that. How, how do we conquer? How could we possibly have the strength to endure? How could we po- possibly reach the end and conquer? Well Jesus tells us in Revelation 12 and verse 11. Exactly how we are going to conquer. He says and they have conquered him. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. The way that we're able to endure, the way that we're able to make it to the end is not found in ourselves. It's found in the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's found in the gospel that we proclaim and that we cling to with our very lives. We find our power to endure and to reach the end and to conquer through the grace of God that comes through the gospel. The bad news for us as a church that wants to be a light to the world is that we will never witness perfectly. We'll never perfectly submit to the authority of Jesus. We'll never perfectly stand and have sound, perfect doctrine. We'll never perfectly uh, stand in righteousness and stand against evil. We'll never perfectly love God or love one another or love the world. But the good news of the gospel is that the tree of life is not for people who are perfect witnesses. The tree of life is not for people who perfectly stand for truth and righteousness and perfectly love and perfectly do all of these things. No, the tree of life is for people who trust in a Savior who died on a tree of death. The tree of life is for people who put their whole confidence in a Savior who died for the evil and died for false teachers and died for the loveless. The people who don't love God like they should and don't love neighbor as they should. He died so that he could earn for us the grace that we need To be able to endure. And he rose. And he assembled a church. He assembled witnesses. To to be his witness in Jerusalem. And Judea and Samaria. and, And to the uttermost parts of the world. He gave us the Holy Spirit. To empower us to endure. To empower us to persevere. In our witness for him. And to stand in truth and righteousness. And to stand in love for God. And love for neighbor. And at the end of all of this endurance. At the end of this grace filled spirit-empowered life of perseverance, we will eat of the tree of life and live forever with our Savior, Jesus, with each other, the ones with whom we have been witnessing to the world. And not only that, we'll stand with those in the world that God, through our witness, called out of the world and into his glorious kingdom. That is why we endure. That's why we endure in our witness. That's why we endure submitting to the authority of Jesus. That's why we continue our stand for truth and righteousness. That's how we can stand for truth and righteousness and love God with all we are and love neighbor as ourselves. because the promise of eternal life drives us. Because it is what we are reaching for by the grace of God with the promise that Jesus has purchased it certainly for us. So may this gospel fuel our worship so that we can burn hot for Jesus and that we might shine bright for Jesus in our witness. Let's pray together. Father, I ask... That you, through your word that has been proclaimed even today, through the gospel that we've talked about, that we've sung about, that we've trusted in. Lord, I pray that you would fuel our passion for you. Lord, that we would love you so much that we can't help but talk about you. That we would delight in you so much that we can't wait to shine bright for you. Lord, I pray that our love for you, Lord, that that in our desire to stand for truth and stand for righteousness, that we would never abandon the love that we have for you or for neighbor. But Lord, I pray that the good news of what Jesus has done and the good news of the promise of eternal life that he has purchased for us would fuel our worship so that we would burn hot for you in our worship, and so shine bright for you in our witness. We want to shine, and Lord, we ask you to give us the grace to endure in that. We love you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.
1: of your beauty. Jesus, there's no one like you. Jesus, we love you. Ever adore you. There's no one like you. Jesus, we love you. completely Jesus says no
0: As we go, uh, may, we, uh, may we go with passion for God that burns hot so that we might shine bright for our God and our witness. Go in the grace and the peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.